Welcome to the Simple Church Podcast, where we're committed to helping you know God, find freedom, discover your purpose, and make a difference. Let's get to today's message. What's up, Simple Church? My name's Aaron Delong. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to say thank you so much for being with us today. We are starting a brand new series today, but before we jump into that, I want to just greet all those of you that are in our online campus, those of you that are watching on Facebook, and those of you that are listening through a podcast, or maybe you're watching this through a rewatch on YouTube or through our app. I don't know how you're getting the content, but I'm just so glad that you are here. Thanks for being with us. Uh, today, we are going to talk about one of the number one issues, not here in America today, but across the entire world. Um, you know, here as we are walking out of the pandemic, we're coming out where things are starting to open up, they're lifting mask mandates, and everything seems to be getting back to a normal kind of rhythm. We're coming out of the pandemic as a world, not just as a country, depleted, a lot of us atrophied relationally, spiritually, mentally. And for a lot of us, we're walking through something we've never walked through before, and that is depression. So today we're going to talk about depression. Now, I just want to kind of let you in on my story to let you know what gives me some authority or a place to speak about depression because I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I'm a pastor and I'm a human, first of all. And I've personally walked through one of the worst bouts of depression in my life in the year 2019. Uh, just just a, a little bit of my story. I, I came through the beginning of 2019, uh, Simple Church was at its height of growth. We had more people attending than we've ever had. We just moved into a brand new building. I had just acquired staff. I'd never had staff before in my life. They were paid staff working with me. I mean, everything was going really great. Possibilities were limitless. Our church was growing. I was just so happy. And yet, uh, you know, things going well in my life. And yet, I was so sad. I was having very dark thoughts, thoughts that and voices that were telling me to, to end my life or to just walk away from my life. And I don't mean walk away from my church and community. I mean, like, leave my phone on a counter, cash out my bank accounts, leave my family behind and move far away to Iowa. And I don't know why Iowa. I think it just felt like it was far away. There's nothing wrong with Iowa. If you're from there, I'm sure it's lovely. But I kept having these thoughts and, and it scared me. And, and I didn't know why I was sad. I didn't, I tried to cheer myself up. I did everything that I knew how to, to get out of depression. But depression is kind of like a cave. It is dark. It is disorienting. You don't know where you're going to step. You don't know how you got there. Maybe you don't know how to get out. And you're worried that every movement might cause pain. And on top of it all, you know, there's some creepy crawlies in there that you don't want to bump into, right? Like depression is kind of like that. You, you, you feel lost. You feel stuck. You don't know how to move forward. Even if you knew how you got there, you, you don't know what to do now. And you just feel lost. And, and that was my life. And I wound up confessing that to my wife one day as we we're driving to a birthday party. I had turned on Christmas music because it was the happiest kind of music I could think of. And I hadn't shared with her before that I was feeling all these feelings and was scared for my life. And, 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 and I turn on Christmas music and, and I start sobbing and she just looks at me with big eyes and she's like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know. That, that's depression. 
And I didn't know what to do, but I began confessing to her. I confessed to my staff and my staff was so happy to hear I was depressed because they said, Aaron, you've been a jerk lately. Yeah. And, and it's right because I was so torn inside that I was misrepresenting Christ, misrepresenting myself and my character was all off. I was just in a tough place. And so I checked into a, a treatment facility, took a week of investing in my mental health and began a mental health journey, reading spiritual books, reading uh, uh, secular books and trying to research and understand this thing we call depression. And I walked into 2020 very different than everybody else did as I be began to learn uh, the tools that I needed in my tool belt in order to deal with the waves of depression in my life. But when 2020 happened to me, I felt equipped, but everybody else around me, well, they were experiencing on some level what I had experienced in 2019. Because when 2020 came along, we're talking elections uh, cycle, we're talking uh, the actual election at the end of the year, we're talking the pandemic, we're talking that, that racism began to be exposed and very clear as we were able to see lots of different things on uh, on screens between uh between you know people groups and and the pain that was on public display all of us were in a lot of pain social isolation through distancing and a lot of us wound up in a place where we'd never been before depressed on some level in fact the cdc says that calls to mental health during the mental health hotlines during that time went up 900%. Divorce filings went up 26%. And 25% of young adults considered suicide, while the rest of the Americans outside of that age group, 10% of them considered suicide as their only option and their only response to what they were feeling inside. Antidepressant use went up 300% and it continues to increase. My friends, I have to tell you that depression is real and mental illness is real. One out of nine people are currently on some type of medication for it. And one out of five people have been on a medication at some point in time in their lives. Depression has become the number one health problem in the world. And sadly, I think the church has been about 20 years behind in addressing mental health issues. And when we talk about mental health, I want to be very clear that I understand that there are some biological contributions to depression and to the anxiety that we all feel. But if we allow biology to be the answer to why we are depressed, well, then I think that we'll miss some very real solutions, some very real practical things that we can do in our lives to help us get out of the cave of depression. And so there's a couple other things that I want to share with you about depression before we get into our topic today and what the Bible has to say about it. First is, is this about uh, depression. Depression is not a malfunction of the mind, okay? It's a signal. It's not a malfunction of the mind. It's a signal. It's trying to tell us something. So if today you find yourself depressed or you find yourself overly anxious, do not think or let anyone tell you that you are weak or crazy. What it is, is you are a human being with some unmet needs in other parts of your life. Second thing you need to know about depression is that there's this stigma around depression, specifically mental illness, and that, that comes along with it. We, we actually think less of a person who is mentally ill, which is ironic because, you know, we understand when somebody else gets sick, you know, when little Johnny's got a fever, we don't, we don't berate him and consider him less than and put him in a special people group and, and, and make it part of his identity. We, we don't get upset at anybody who gets sick. 
but, but we think less of people when they, they confess they've got a mental illness or, or they, they share that they've got depression. There's just this stigma around it. And the third thing you need to know about depression is that, you know, mental illness and depression is the only thing that comes along with it becoming your identity. You know, if you've got cancer, you're not all of a sudden considered the cancerous group of people like we do the mentally ill, like we talk about them that way. Like it's just, it's not okay because your illness, my friends, is not your identity. It just isn't what you're feeling is not who you are. It's just currently what you're struggling with. So, so what does the Bible have to say about depression? Uh, and, and I'm going to share with you some great resources from the Bible. I would love to share with you some, some additional resources, some books that I've read that will help you. But one of the, the best books I will tell you to read in addition to your Bible is a book by the same title of our series. It's called Out of the Cave. It's by Pastor Chris Hodges. And uh, he went through some depression as well. And, uh, and he started writing this book a few years ago. And through the pandemic, man, this has been something he's learned so much about. And I'm so thankful for it. It's uh, I, I'm going to be teaching some from this book. So if you're looking for a great resource to put in to a friend or a family member's hand who is going through depression, this book, again, it's called Out of the Cave by Pastor Chris Hodges. Highly recommend it. It will be way more explosive in, in its content and its resources. And, uh, and I think it'll be a huge help to you. But today, I'm going to talk to you about what the Bible says using some of the content from this book in order to help us in this series to understand it. And in my message today, I'm actually gonna give you the end of it before I give you the beginning because I want you to start off this message with hope because I understand the topic of depression is kind of depressing. So here's your hope. Here's your shot in the arm, right? And here it is, is that God wants you to be free from depression. God wants you to be living what Jesus called a full and fulfilled life. In fact, freedom is exactly why Jesus came. That's what Galatians 5.1 says. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's his desire for you, for you to be free, because you know this, I know this, who the son sets free is free indeed. Now that doesn't mean that we're not gonna struggle. What it means is that we can beat it. It means that, man, the enemy's gonna try to take you out, but that you have freedom, that there is freedom for you. You will fight, you will win, and you will conquer this. Now, I love to look in the Bible and, and see that God did not use perfect people. He used people that struggled, people who were imperfect. And there's a lot of great people of faith throughout scriptures that actually got depressed. So just know this, that we are not alone in this journey of life that we're on and all of its ups and downs and even into the darkness of a cave. God uses adulterers, he uses murderers, and he even uses depressed people. In fact, one of the the people that experienced depression was a guy named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet and he wrote, wrote two books of the Bible. One of them was all about his depression. It's called Lament, Lamentations, excuse me. It's just him lamenting. It's him whining and crying about what Israel is going through. In fact, he says this specifically in Lamentations three seventeen through 20. He says, I've been deprived of peace I've forgotten what prosperity is. In other words, he's like, I, I, I don't have any peace. I don't know if you can identify with that throughout this season of your life, that, that peace has been robbed of you. There's just been anxiety and fear. He said, I've forgotten what prosperity is. In other words, he's just forgotten how to succeed. He can't move his life forward. He feels stuck. So he says, as a result of that, I say, and watch what he says, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. 
So, so everything he'd hoped for, his hope is gone. And man, let me tell you something. That indeed is a dark place to be when hope has left your life. That's why I want you to have hope at the beginning of this message. There's freedom for you. He goes on to say, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. So, so now because he's lost hope, all he's focusing on is all the terrible things that have happened for him. And he's going over it over and over again in his mind. And so of course he's sad. Of course his soul is downcast within him. But he wasn't the only one to struggle with depression. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, said this to the church in Corinth. He says, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed. Just like, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to think that you're alone. I don't want you to think that you're stuck. I don't want you to think that you've got no hope. He says, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Paul is saying that at some point in time, he was tapping out. He was saying, God, I can't take this. I do. He despaired of life itself. He was, he was praying that prayer. Lord, I don't want to end my life, but if you go ahead and take me out, that would be okay. Just, just let this overwhelm me. Let this take me out of this life. There's another great man, and he's actually where we're going to land in the Bible. And the, and the Bible actually has a lot to say about him and validates his importance. And his name is Elijah. And you'll find him in... Uh, in the book of Kings, and it tells his story. But Elijah not only exists in, in the Old Testament, we actually see Elijah, he appears on the mountain of transfiguration. This is when Jesus was walking the earth. He took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and suddenly Jesus' likeness changes, and Moses and Elijah are standing there with Jesus, and they're having a conversation. We have no idea what that conversation is, but the Bible validates that Elijah is a huge huge person of the Bible and very important. And this guy, Elijah, he struggled with depression. Let me tell you a little bit of his story. We, if you go to first Kings chapter 18, it'll tell you the backstory before we get to what we're going to look at today. And I'll just kind of give it to you in a nutshell. Uh, Elijah is going up against the prophets of a false God named Baal. And there are 850 of these prophets of Baal. And they were trying to decide publicly, not quietly, but publicly, who is the real God? And so they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put an altar up and we're going to put a sacrifice on that altar. And whichever God answers by fire, then that will be God. And, you know, if we win, Elijah, you're going to die. And if you win, then then we'll give up our lives. And so that's that's what happens. The prophets of Baal, it's a great story. It's full of of, of some powerful stuff that happens, and I don't have time to preach it all, but essentially those prophets danced around their sacrifice, and they cut themselves and chanted, and Elijah's just teasing them. Maybe your God's asleep, or he's on vacation, and about the evening time, Elijah says, enough of that, it's my turn, and he covers the sacrifice with water and digs a trench, and the water's covering the sacrifice, and the trench itself is full, which, which was fantastic that they even gave that sacrifice to the water. They're in the middle of a three-year drought at this point, a drought, by the way, that was brought on because Elijah prayed for it to not rain. So three years, they're dumping water on this thing, and Elijah asked God to answer by fire, and fire falls from the heaven, burns up the sacrifice, right? Consumes the sacrifice, consumes all the water in the trench, and so the, the you know what's coming here, all 850 of those prophets are killed. And then Elijah goes on to pray for rain to come and, and, and it ends the three years of drought. All right. So that's the end of, of these two huge victories for Elijah and Ahab, who is the king. He's a wicked king. He's married to a wicked queen and her name is Jezebel. Uh, they did not like Elijah and he goes 
Ahab goes to uh, Jezebel and he tells her the story of what happened and, and what just happened to all 850 of her prophets because they were slaughtered because uh, the, the God of Israel proved to be the real God, not this false God, Baal. And it says this, we pick up our story, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger. She didn't go herself. She sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like that of one of them, talking about the, the prophets who were slaughtered. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, Elijah's got these two huge uh, victories in his life. God's making it rain again. And the prophets of Baal were just, just slaughtered and God answered by fire. And yet, one text message, one, one word from this bully, one comment on his social media status, had Elijah tucking his tail and running for the hills. It says that, when, that, he, that he ran for his life and when he came to Beersheba in Judah, which by the way, is the place where God had originally called him. When he came back there, he left his servant there. So, so he's going now by himself and he went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. There's that prayer. God, I don't want to end my life. I don't want to sin against you, but if you'll take me out, that's cool. That's what I want. That's the prayer Elijah's praying. I prayed that prayer too in my, in my time of depression. He said, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. And then he compares himself, says, I'm no better than my ancestors. Now here's Elijah. He's, he's been fearless for three years, just had these two massive victories and one incident, one text message, one threat from Jezebel. And he runs out to the edge of the desert and gets depressed. And so in his story, there are six things that Elijah did that ultimately depleted him and left him in a state of depression. And I think that these are things that we can get our arms around, that we can manage, that, that the Bible speaks to and helps us with that. So I'm going to share them with you. So here we go. Going to try to move through them quickly. If you're taking notes today, please do that. If you're not taking notes today, please do that. Uh, but, but let me just say this. I'm going to talk about how we end up depressed, but, but I also want to talk about like that these are things we need to stop doing. There are things that are do, that we're doing that got us in this condition, but I also don't want to discredit the value of counseling. I went through counseling. I've considered medication as well. And, and if counseling and medication are working for you, do not discredit them. I am not telling you to stop doing those things. I think those are beautiful things that you need to work through and to use as long as they are helping you. That is wonderful. But I think there are some factors in our lives that we can control, some things that we can stop doing so that we ultimately can come out of the cave and win the battle over depression. So here they are. There's six things from Elijah's stories that I think are adding to our depleted and depressed lives. The first thing is life imbalances. Uh, in his book, Lost Connections, Johan Hari says this. He said that we need to talk less about chemical imbalances and more about the imbalances and the way we live. In other words, your depression may be hereditary. It may have a lot to do with your biology and your family health history, but more and more research is coming out that says the main causes are not about your brain's chemical imbalance. It's more about the way we're living our lives. And, and if it's just about our lifestyle, that means we can change it, right? Because see, Elijah's depression came after two major spiritual victories, huge wins, but it was his lifestyle. It was not the victories. It was his lifestyle that led him to being depressed. Here's the thing. Elijah went all the way out to the edge of the wilderness 
and he was exhausted by his lifestyle. And here's the problem with being tired. We have the same exact issue in our life. These life imbalances are leaving us tired. They're leaving us vulnerable. And when we are tired, when we are vulnerable, here's the biggest issue with this life imbalance is that we make poor decisions. We're tired because we're so busy in our lives. We have no margin in our calendars. We say yes to everything. If we, we've got stuff to do almost every single night of the week, if we've got kids, our kids have got stuff to do every single night of the week. We're running here and there all around, around the square saying, catch me if you can. We've got no margin in our calendars that, that allow us to have a Sabbath, let alone to rest properly. We've got no margin on our calendars, no margin in our minds. We are constantly distracted by our smartphones. Our smartphones are detracting us from being present, understanding ourselves, and even being able to identify how we're currently feeling because we're constantly escaping from our lives through this little portal that we hold in our hands or ones that are held on our screens or sit in our laps. Our minds have no margin. We've created a hectic pace of life that we simply cannot sustain. That was the same for Elijah. We get so busy asking if we could do something that the real question we should ask ourselves before we decide if we do something, anything in our life is should we do something? Peter Lardy, or excuse me, Stephen Lardy, in his book, The, uh, the Depression Cure, said this, we were never designed for the sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, fast food laden, sleep deprived, frenzied pace of modern life. This is all of us to a point. And I think it comes along with the American dream, right? And keeping up with the Joneses. We want it all and we want it all now. We want the best house. We want the best neighborhoods. We want the best car. We want the best job. We want the most money. And so we work so much, so hard and, and, and we want it all. We get into so much debt so that we can keep up with everybody around us and, and show that we've got what they've got. We've got FOMO, which is, which is, uh, fear of missing out. That's F-O-M-O, -O, fear of missing out. So we, so we had this constant connection with everybody through our social media and, and, and this constant connection through text messages and our, and, and all the different apps where we're constantly having our attention pulled and, and all of this has left us relationally, mentally, financially, and spiritually exhausted. And we make bad decisions as a result. So what do we do? I think it's important that we learn to order our lives to give attention to the pace of our lives and what is really going on. Ecclesiastes 4, 6 says, there's better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. What he's saying is, is, is it's better just to have a little bit and be content. It's better just to have, have $1 and be content and have some peace than it is to have $2 and to have to chase after it. In Ecclesiastes, he's talking about the chasing after when he talks about stuff, you're doing stuff that doesn't mean anything. You're wasting all your life on nothing. Stuff that in the end, you're just going to go, this was just a chasing after the wind because you can't catch the wind. He says, better to have just a little bit with some peace than to have the stress and the anxiety and the fast-paced life of having both hands full and no peace and doing something that doesn't mean anything. You know, for me, one of my favorite favorite gifts was a rocking chair this Christmas that I got because man, it slows me down. I'm all about the slowdown now. It's one of the things that I learned as I went through therapy is that I need to slow my life down. I need to say no to more things. I need to take naps. I need to eliminate notifications on my phone, eliminate access to me and, and, and really just kind of be present in the moment 
with others and with myself and slow down. And that rocking chair, it allows me to do that. I sit on my front porch and I watch people zooming around my neighborhood all day long. Dog sits next to me and we just watch. I'll read and we just soak it all in. Life imbalances, guys. We've got to get our arms around our lives. Give care to it. Be intentional. Second thing that, uh, that, that Elisha had going on that led him into depression was comparing ourselves with others. You know, Elijah said, I'm no better than my ancestors. That's one of the things that he said to God. He was playing the comparison game and comparing himself with them. Well, all it did was make him more depressed. And we do the exact same thing, don't we? And we're constantly looking at others. Like, like we are always staring at our social media. We're looking at Facebook. We're looking at Instagram. We're looking at at TikTok, we're, we're, we're looking at Snapchat, we're, we're looking at everybody else's life, but here's the problem with looking at what everybody else is doing on a regular basis. Comparison, Theodore Roosevelt said, is the thief of joy. In other words, it's a trap. The more we look, the more we are robbed of the joy that we ought to have about our very own lives. In fact, Galatians 6, 4 through 5 says this about us, is that each one of us, that's you, that's me, each one of us, should test their own actions, give some intentionality to it. Asking the question of not could I do this, but should I be doing this, right? You should test your own actions. Then you can take pride in themselves alone. That's not an unholy pride. That's actually a holy pride. It's like, I'm doing this the right way without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. See, Elijah never had to answer to God for his ancestors. He only needed to answer to God about himself. He, he didn't need to be looking at their life to compare himself to them. Whatever, it doesn't even tell us what he was comparing about himself to them, their successes, their failures. We don't know. But I do know that it was a comparison game and we do it too. We spend far too much time looking at others. And I think, again, I've said this too much, but I talk about social media a lot. I think it's a useful tool, but I'm telling you it is destroying you. And church, if you don't wake up, you're going to wind up in a world of hurt if you're not already. You need to understand that social media needs to be like your dog. You need to learn to walk your dog, not let your dog walk you. You know what happens when your dog walks you? You can ask my mother-in-law. When a dog walks you, you get a broken arm and a scratched up face because that's exactly what happened to her when her dog decided to run wild and drag her down the road. That's what social media is doing to each one of us. It is destroying our lives. It is bringing more pain than you are even aware. And I encourage you, I encourage you to cut most of it and limit it as best you can in your life. Learn to walk that dog because if you don't, you're gonna continue to live a life of comparison and you're gonna be miserable because you're comparing your life now and in every moment that you're in with somebody's highlight reel that you're seeing on Instagram and Facebook because nobody's posting their bad days. You know what I'm saying? And I think this is one of the biggest issues of our day. It's literally a recipe for complete mental health meltdown. To constantly be staring at what other, everybody else is doing. In fact, research shows that social media has changed the way that if you started looking at it from a young age, it changed the way that your brain has literally been formed. And a lot of those kids who started using social media young are now adults. Even the creators of social media, if you watch the documentary called The Social Dilemma Documentary, it's, I believe it's on Netflix, those people who created the social media platforms and the pieces and parts of them are now decrying it. They're renouncing what they've created. They aren't on social media and they won't let their kids be on social media because of what it's done to the human mind. They, they simply will not 
participate with it because they understand that it's robbing them of joy and they don't want their children to grow up depressed. For me, I've totally changed how I interact with social media. I don't have the apps on my phone. I have the websites of Facebook and Instagram blocked so that I can't even access them. I have intentional times of you using it. I can only use it right here on my laptop and that means it's only times when I'm sitting down, not when I'm out running around doing doing uh, doing errands or when I'm driving or, or when I'm in the middle of a conversation or should be in the middle of a meeting. I'm not distracting myself. I'm limited to when I sat down with this laptop. I have limited its power over me and it's changed everything for me. We've got to stop comparing ourselves with others because the truth is each and every single one of us has a different assignment and a different place that God has put us. Amen, everybody? Third thing is ruminating in self-talk. Man, Elijah said this about himself. He said, God, I'm working hard. And you know what? I'm out here doing it and you don't even see me. And now I'm the only prophet left, which was totally wrong. It was, it was it, how he got there was he was just focused on his pain and his response to it and the issues in his life instead of thinking about the solutions. That's what rumination is, right? Rumination is where you focus all of your attention on the symptoms of your distress instead of trying to fix the situation. And what happens is that just makes it worse. When we talk about rumination, rumin there are animals that are ruminating animals, and, and a cow is one of them. And, and a cow, uh, the way it ruminates, we call it chewing its cud. So what a cow does is a cow goes out to the field, eats some grass, and he swallows it, and then it verps it back up in its mouth and chews it all over again. It swallows it again, verps it back up in its mouth. That's right, I'm saying verb. It's like a burp vomit. He verps it back up in his mouth and he chews it again. I don't know about you, but there's never been anything I've ever verped up into my mouth that I wanted to sit there and hold and chew a little bit longer. You know what I'm saying? Not even a Chipotle burrito. There is no way. Once it goes down, I'm either going to swallow it again quickly or I'm going to let it out of my mouth. I'm not going to sit there and chew on it again. That's disgusting. But that's what we're doing when we ruminate. It's unhealthy. It's not okay for us. It's okay for the cow, but it's not okay for us. We overthink and obsess about our situations or our life events, such as our work, our relationships, our financial situation. And what it leads to is the voice of our inner critic being empowered. And man, once that inner critic starts talking to you, it'll start talking down about your situation. And you got to watch it because that turn, that inner critic is really just self-talk, right? Because you can get away from somebody who's talking bad to you and about you, right? Like you can leave the room, you can block them, you can push them out of your life. But when that inner critic is in your head, it's just you and it's going everywhere with you. Now that self-talk is exactly where the devil loves to show up. That's why in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, it tells us, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Your Thoughts matter. I have daily declarations that I read over myself that are based on God's word and they tell me why I'm here, God's purpose and plan for my life. When I'm, I'm working through my feelings, I, I, I talk to somebody about them. I don't hold them all to myself. Uh, I, so I'm not sitting there ruminating about them. I share them and I, and I share them with my wife specifically and, and those that are close to me. And I, and I listen for truth, right? Because my feelings aren't facts. And Elijah was sitting there and the danger was he was just ruminating. He got alone in his thoughts and his story got worse and worse and worse. He wound up in a place where he believed a lie. He said, I'm the only one left, but he truly wasn't. This is just a lie. Author Brian Tracy says that 95% of our emotions are determined by the way that we talk to ourselves. That's why the Bible tells us in Philippians 4, 8 through 9, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, Whatever is lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And the God of peace will be with you. 
You gotta control your mind. You've gotta silence the inner critic. You've gotta cease the self-talk. And if you do that, you'll be able to control your life. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, be careful what you think, because your thoughts run your life. So watch your thoughts. Make sure you don't get alone with them. Share them with someone else. Don't, don't spend time ruminating, asking God, why this and why that? How could you this? Don't, don't do that. Don't get alone with those. Number four, it was the inability to process pain in a healthy way. Man, this is one I think a lot of us struggle with because we've all got bad days. That, and here's the thing, that stuff's gonna happen to us. If you don't understand that, I believe that, that the, your problem and a lot of people's problem is that we have a wrong expectation of earth and God. What I mean by that is that we think happiness is a given. We think that, man, I, I'm just supposed to be happy because the world owes me a living and everything's supposed to go right. And then, you know, now that I've got Jesus in my life, well, God's not going to let anything bad happen to me. And that's simply not true. That, that is a wrong perspective. And, and if you really believe that, then you're going to experience pain in an unhealthy way. You're going to whine and you're going to cry about it. Well, that's not fair. And why would God do this? And if he's so good, why does he let bad stuff happen? And, and, and here's the thing. Here's the truth about earth. It's fallen. Since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, all of humanity, and not just people, all of creation is under a curse. Bad stuff is going to happen. Life is tough. And here's the thing. When the tough things come in your life, how do you respond? I think every single one of us medicates in some kind of way. When we feel pain, we do something for that pain, right? You got a backache, you take some ibuprofen or some Tylenol or whatever that might be. And, and it's the same when we're feeling relational pain, emotional pain, a, a, a financial pain, whatever it might be. We have a tendency to medicate in some way. And for a lot of us, we turn to the way the world is doing things. We, we turn to unhealthy ways. We use drugs, alcohol, pornography, sex, video games, till four in the morning, we ought to be sleeping, that'd be the best thing for you. Food, or even an unhealthy approach to your work, meaning maybe you work endlessly and you're never home with your family and you never get a reprieve. These things are unhealthy. According to the Washington Post, during the full quarantine in 2020, Overdoses nationally jumped 18% in March, 29% in April, and 42% in May. A lot of people dealing with pain in an unhealthy way, and they're using drugs, what they're putting in their veins, what they're smoking in order to help them escape that pain. So how do you deal with your pain? Well, there's a Jewish psychiatrist from Austria named Viktor Frankl, and, and I've talked about his book before. It's fantastic. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, in his book, he talked about how during World War II, he, he was actually interned at four of the concentration camps. And, uh, and, and he survived the concentration camps. But afterwards, he was a psychiatrist and, and he was assigned to work with uh, suicidal patients in Vienna. And not just, you know, regular ones. These are specifically the ones who had, had survived the concentration camp. And as a result, they'd lost, lost all purpose for their life and they were suicidal. All the patients that were assigned to Viktor Frankl, not a single one of them did he lose during his time. So I believe there's some merit to his work and, and it's worth looking at. See, here's what he believed. He believed that Sigmund Freud, who was another psychiatrist, he, he believed that his theory about, about treatment for mental health issues was wrong. 
Freud believed that there was, that life was all about pleasure, that, that, that all you needed to do was find something pleasurable to do. But the problem with pleasure is all it does is numb things. Viktor Frankl believed that life was not about pleasure, but that it was about meaning. Because see, when you don't have any meaning, you dull yourself with pleasure and that doesn't really help. Pleasures are meaningless, according to Solomon in his book, Ecclesiastes. And Viktor Frankl found in treatment that if that he could assign three things to them, make sure that they were involved in three things and that it would help them. It would give them meaning in their life. He called it logotherapy. The first thing he said that you got to have in your life is meaningful work. So you need to do something that matters. Around here at Simple Church, we really believe in that, which is why we have growth track to help you understand. Uh, we do spiritual gifts assessments. We do personality assessments so that you can understand where would I be excited to serve? When we make recommendations for you, you can choose to serve anywhere, but we believe that you need to be involved in doing something that you believe matters because all of it matters, but you need to be involved in something that matters to you and the way that you're wired. Second thing that Viktor Frankl said that they needed to have was a community of friends who loved them unconditionally. We're talking about fellowship here at this point. And men, we're all about that here at Simple Church. That's why we are a church of small groups. We call them grow groups and they're, but they launch, uh, this weekend, actually, this week starts and so you can still jump into a group. Uh, hopefully they're posting them there uh, for you in the, in the chat boxes of wherever you're watching this. Or if you're, you're not watching this live, you're, you're doing a rewatch. The links will be in the description of the videos, but, but that's why you belong in a group. You need to be, find a group of people that, that love you unconditionally. Number three thing that he believed that everybody needed to have was to take whatever suffering they were experiencing and find the positive in it. So, so they needed meaningful work, they needed a community of unconditional love, and they needed to add some meaning to the pain that they've gone through. He said this about suffering, that suffering ceases to be suffering the moment you attach meaning to it. And I think that's powerful. So how do we properly medicate our pain then? Well, we assign meaning to our pain because there's purpose in it. In fact, 2 Corinthians gives us just one of the purposes of our pains. Chapter one, verses four through six says this, God comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So that when whatever pain you're going through, God's gonna comfort you and then you get to comfort them with the pain or with the comfort that you receive from God. You get to comfort others that are going through the same exact thing. There's purpose in your pain, you get to say to somebody, I know what you're going through. I've experienced it too. This is what God did in me. This is how I walk through it. This is how he walked through it with me. Goes on to say, for just as we share abundantly and the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and your salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. What I'm trying to tell you is that there's purpose in your pain. Not that God's purpose for your life is pain, but that every pain you walk through, he will use it for his purposes. That's what that verse says. Your life's pains don't disqualify you. In fact, I believe that all the pain that you've walked through qualifies you to help others. It gives you the right. It gives you the platform. It gives you the space so that you can make a difference in someone else's life. There is purpose in your pain. Here's the last two, isolation and loneliness. This is number five cause of depression. You know, we're the loneliest society in human history and we're more connected than ever before. And I don't know how we are lonelier than ever. But remember this, the first problem in the Bible wasn't sin when an Adam and Eve sinned. No, the first problem, the first thing God said that wasn't good was solitude. 
Genesis 2 verse 18, it says, the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone because God created Adam first by himself. And so God addresses this issue of us being alone because we're not designed to be alone. That's why Romans 12, 5 says, since we're all one body in Christ. In other words, we're all a body part. You can't just be an, a, a body part walking around. Could you imagine if we had a bunch of, a, a bunch of pointer fingers and pinky toes and knees walking around trying to exist as just a body part? We, we, we are one body, different body parts. And he says, we belong to each other. And each of us needs all the others. See, Elijah, the story says that Elijah got to Beersheba and he left his servant there. And he went a day's journey into uh, the wilderness. And he did what so many of us do. And it's a trap. He left people out. Like, like during this time, I understand that they've talked about social uh, social distancing. And I think that's a poor use of the word because really they just, they just needed some physical distancing, right? But they called it social distancing. And so we've been distant from each other. We've been scared to be in relationship with people. We've been scared to even be you know, six feet apart from one another during this season. And it's caused a bigger problem than you can even realize. Here's the thing. Life was not intended to be lonely. In fact, life is not lonely. The way we live it and the way we go about it is Let's change our ways. We need each other. In fact, tell the person that's sitting next to you right now, if you're sitting next to somebody, tell them you need me. And, then, and you tell them back, tell them I need you. We need each other. We weren't meant to be lonely. And here's, here's the last one and the, the last contributing factor to the depression that we find ourselves in. And this is one that's, that's probably not in any of the books that we read, especially in the secular books as we, we look to them for, for answers in depression. And it's spiritual warfare. You know, we're not human beings having a temporary spiritual experience on Sunday. You know that? We are spiritual beings having a temporary human experience. That, that you are a spirit being and there is a war going on in the spiritual realm over you. And that war is being led by an enemy who hates you. You say, well, Aaron, I don't believe in the devil, so there's that. Well, that's fine. Your disbelief doesn't eliminate his existence. It never has and it never will. In fact, that would probably be one of the greatest acts of the enemy, the greatest accomplishments he could ever make in life is convincing you that he doesn't exist. But here's my question for you. What would you do or what would you be willing to do? If I told you that tonight somebody was gonna come to your house, they've got a key to your house and while you're asleep, everything in your house is gonna be taken. That means all your stuff, the family members that you love, when you wake up in the morning, everything's gonna be gone. I'll tell you what you'd be willing to do, anything. You'd be willing to do anything to protect your family, to protect your belongings. You'd stay awake. You might even introduce that bad person that's coming to your house to two of your friends Smith and Wesson. You know what I'm saying? First Peter 5, 8 through 9 encourages us because there is an enemy that is coming, because there is an enemy that is on the prowl, because there is an enemy of your life. He said this, be self-controlled and alert. You need to be awake. He said, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. The enemy is sneaky. He's like a crouching lion in the, in, in the weeds, just waiting to pounce on a gazelle that just roams by. Because, you know, a lion doesn't show up and just says, okay, hey guys, I'm hungry. Which one of you is going to let me eat you? He hides and he waits on the right moment to pounce. And that's how your enemy is. He's crafty. And that's why we have a responsibility to do what Paul urges us to do in Ephesians 6 verse 11. It's to put on the full armor of God 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So I think one of our issues is, is that we have the armor, we have the ability to resist, to defeat the enemy, and we're called to put it on so that we can do just that, not just have it in our possession. A lot of you during this pandemic, you haven't put on the armor of God at all. In fact, I would say one of the, one of the bigger issues that's facing the church, just the church, is spiritual atrophy. We've forgotten how to put on our armor. We've forgotten that we have it. We've forgotten that we have the sword of the spirit and therefore we have not wielded them. We have not suited up in God's armor so that we can defeat the enemy. Bottom line is God has given us authority. We have to choose to use it. So so if you're looking to to get out of this cave, my friends, we've, we've got to stop this lifestyle of depleting behaviors because they're leading us to a state of depression. And I'm telling you, God does not want you depleted and depressed. He does not want you lost in a cave. He wants you to be free. You've got to make a decision and decide today to do things his ways instead of doing things the way the world is doing them. Because his ways, my friends, are better. And you'll find help to get out of the cave. Amen, everybody? Well, let's take a moment and just pray. Father, my prayer is for all those that are that have been going through this season of their life lost in a deep and dark depression, even if it's just a light depression that they've experienced, God, for one reason or another. I pray today that that life would be injected into their hearts, hope would be injected into their spirits. Lord, that they would take careful consideration to their lifestyle to the imbalances, to the isolation, to the ways that they are living their lives and choose life-giving ways, Lord. For these are the ways that are out of the cave. And I got, I know we're gonna talk more about that next week, but today I believe there is freedom for people to have. I pray that you begin speaking to their hearts, Lord. I pray that you begin bringing clarity to the ways that they are living their lives, Lord, so that they may have the freedom that you, Jesus, died for. As we continue in this moment of prayer, I just want to share with you that, that many of you, the thing that you need the most right now, the first step for you to walk out of this cave, yeah, you can address all these lifestyle things, but the thing you need the most is hope. Hope in something that is beyond you. Hope in someone that is not human, or rather someone who is fully human, but also fully God, and that is Jesus Christ. See, Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect and sinless life, surrendered his life, paid a price, died on a cross in our place. In other words, he, he died instead of us having to die. And he took our place, paid for our sins and said, you can have all of this. You can have forgiveness. He died and on the third day he rose from the dead and he said, I'm even going to give you my spirit that will dwell inside of you that will comfort you, that will empower you, that will teach you, that will strengthen you. My goodness, Jesus has a full and fulfilled life for you to live. He wants to add meaning to your life, purpose to it. And if you're ready to not only experience a taste of heaven here on this earth, but eternity in heaven with him when we exit this earth, then pray this prayer with me. Have your sins forgiven, be given a brand new start. Say, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins and make me brand new. 
Show me how to live for you and how to tell others about you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. But if you prayed that prayer today, the Bible says that all heaven's having a party for you and celebration that you have turned to Christ. Let me tell you something. As a church, we celebrate as well. And I'm going to ask you to take one more step today. If you said yes to Jesus, take the second step of your spiritual journey. And that's telling somebody about it. And we would love to hear from you. We would love to know about your decision to follow Jesus today. In the description of the video or in our online campus, there is a link that, that says digital connection card. Click it and fill it out. We won't sell your information. We're not gonna harass you. We just wanna celebrate with you. We wanna help you understand your next, your next steps in your spiritual journey. We wanna welcome you to a spiritual family because men, you belong here with us. Amen, everybody. No matter whether you are just only gonna be able to join us online ever or whether you live in the Reynoldsburg area and when we finally land in a building, you wanna come and be part of our congregation in person. We would love to have you do that. But, but take a moment and fill out that connection card. Mark the spot that said, I'm saying yes to Jesus and we'll, we'll help you on your next steps of that journey. Amen, everybody. All right, well, as we wrap up today's message, I wanna thank you all so much for being with us. Again, I encourage you, this, this topic is the number one issue facing the world, and you can be part of offering them a solution. Share this video with somebody. Share it on your wall. Share it in the groups that you participate in. Just share it. It takes seconds to click share, Click it, share to your page, share to your, your wall, share to the groups, send it in a message to somebody that you know needs to hear this message. Amen, everybody. And last but not least, I wanna give you an opportunity to give. You know, if you're a guest with us, you're under no obligation to give. Uh, for everybody else that, that you're here and God has spoken to your heart either about tithing or about giving a gift above and beyond your tithing, or maybe he's spoken to you about giving a gift to our building fund, uh, which is super exciting. Uh, man, I, I would ask for you to be obedient in that. Those are our steps of obedience. Those are also acts of worship. And we thank you so much for your faithfulness in those areas as you're helping us continue to do what we do, which is preach the gospel here in this online format uh, until we're able to gather together in person again. So thank you so much. You're making a difference here in Reynoldsburg, around the state of Ohio, around the country, and even the world as we, as we take your finances that you're giving and give to those that are doing the work in other areas of the world that we just can't go to. So thank you so much for that. All the ways to do that are on the screen. You can give digitally, snail mail. Thank you so much. Be obedient, go, follow the Lord as he leads. Share this with somebody this week. I love you guys. Be back here next week for part two of Out of the Cave. And as always, if God is doing something in your life, click the digital connection card, click on the My Story section and share that with me. It's such an encouragement. I would love to hear from you. God bless you guys. We'll see you back here next week.